This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. Inside Story on BFM 89.9. Good evening. You're with Sharmila Ganesan and Leech Whelan. Tonight, the platform formerly known as Twitter. It's been about a year since Elon Musk took over and rebranded it as X. So what has changed since and what might yet be to come? We get into it. And of course, we also want to hear from you. Are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call 77332900, tweet us at BFM Radio, we're resolutely calling it Tweet Us, and send us a voice note or WhatsApp at our U mobile number 018789 This is Inside Story. It is just coming up to 6.09. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. So, a year ago, Elon Musk bought what was known as Twitter then and then changed the name to X. And he bought it for $44 billion US dollars. That happened on the 27th of October 2022. Therefore, we've just about celebrated dubiously, the first year. I should sound more neutral, I know. But I think, by and large, the subsequent... Um, discussion, response, dismay by most people on X now hasn't been the most positive. So I don't think it's unfair to say that the past year for the social media platform has been a very rough one. Well, okay, we could talk about users, but we should also talk about what happened in the company because it was a rough one for employees. Um, So since the takeover, most of Twitter's staff were laid off or they resigned. Um, The it used to be publicly traded. He took it private. Um, the people who survived the culling were then asked to commit unconditionally to their jobs, uh, forgo any notion of telecommuting. There were kind of missives about the level of dedication that he expected. Um, and then in July this year, Elon did away with the bird logo and change the platform's name to X, which as we all now know, um, despite the fact that you type still twitter.com, it will take you to X. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's on the internal side. As far as users go, report. so this is all kind of um, different numbers are reported differently, but Previously, Twitter had 238 million daily users. According to their new chief executive, Linda Yaccarino, um, they've dropped to 225 million. Um, and so there's, there is that dip, right? It's not huge, but there, well, um, I suppose more than 10 million um, mm. in most contexts would be considered large. But the point is that there has been this sense of deterioration and a part of that is the user experience so the user experience of course doesn't happen in a vacuum because advertising um, is tied to users and uh, perception of x right so advertising actually accounted for 90 percent of twitter's revenue in 2021 uh, but reuters reported that the monthly advertising revenue has now declined to at least 55 percent year over year each month since the takeover Uh, and this is mostly based on people's fear of Elon Musk's uh, over-moderation and the concern over his leadership. Uh, And last month, Elon said that advertising revenue has fallen 60%. And if we just quickly look at the sorts of changes that have caused this um, discomfort, unhappiness about the user experience... um, 
there have been a number of things, right? So uh, firstly, there was the Twitter Blue, which uh, turned Twitter into a subscription account, uh, which meant that you no longer had to be verified as such. You just had to pay a subscription to get that blue tick. Um, and he also relaunched that. It resulted in a lot of impersonator accounts with a lot of fake things popping up. Uh, then there were also um, issues around um, the fact that the subscription, uh, that the number of subscriptions had reached 600 thousand that provided revenue but it wasn't enough to cover that advertising slump that we were talking about earlier which was in the beginning the one of the main reasons Elon Musk introduced it to begin with the over moderation is also interesting because yeah. of course a big thing um, that that Musk spoke publicly about anyway was the sense of freedom of expression and that that was the main thing he wanted to take uh, he that was the main reason he wanted to take over Twitter that he felt that there was a responsibility for the world's town hall to have that kind of freedom of speech, to not ban so um, so indiscriminately, to not block so indiscriminately, all these things. And yet the experience, I think, for many people since he took over has actually not matched up to that. Um, you also get advertised a lot of stuff. Um, the... There have been famously, um, the site has broken down multiple times, again, because of all those laid off people. So yeah, th there's just been a lot. It's been quite messy. And for what was, maybe still is, a social media giant, it's, a, it's an important conversation to have. And I think it's an important conversation to have because uh, let's not forget Twitter is still is, in fact, one of the main ways that people get their updates and their information and people stay connected. It's at, It's been at the heart of democracy movements, right? Um, and so if we're talking about the, the perhaps the, the scattering or uh, a, a, at least a changing of what this platform is, what does it mean in a larger sense for how we um, access information talk to each other? And what does it mean for those of us who are on social media, which is a large number of people? Anyway, we will be joined after this um, by Nishant Shah. He's a professor of global media and director of, di of the Digital Narrative Studio at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. But we want to hear from you. Are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Bole for Malaysia. Ha. BFM eighty nine point nine, the business station. It is 6.15. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we are marking, I wanted to say celebrating, but I really don't think that's the right word. We are marking the uh, one year since Elon Musk took over what is now known as X, what we used to call Twitter. And we're asking you, are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899, tweet us at BFM Radio. So joining us to discuss this is Nishant Shah. He is a professor of global media and the director of the Digital Narrative Studio at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Nishant, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. So X, formerly Twitter, has seen a lot of changes under Musk's leadership. What have been some of the more significant ones, both in terms of the user experience as well as how the companies run? So, um... I think at the very least, the change of ownership and governance of X uh, is indicative that X is not formally Twitter. It's a new company that's building on the infrastructure of an old one that was called Twitter. 
And it's important to perhaps say that the rebranding was not just a change of name, but a change of the very nature of the company, right? So when we talk about changes in experiences, let's not try and form a continuity. Let's insist that this is a new company, which is trying to use um, the older user base, but it's not the old company transformed. And I think doing that is important because the minute you say that, you realize that you are witnessing a hyper-capitalist, neoliberal, Silicon Valley-driven platform, which is primarily trying to figure out how to capitalize on hate, violence, and abuse by incentivizing some of the worst excesses of human behavior. So I'm not a very big fan of Twitter to begin with, right? Old Twitter had its problems, but it was at least aware of it. Twitter as an organization was actively trying to build safeguards, protection, oversight. Uh, it gave its data freely to researchers so that they could study and learn from it. It actively invested in research to make the environments better. Uh, it did a lot of lobbying in many authoritarian countries to set up policies around hate speech and abuse. And, you know, famously suspended the then president of the United States from using Twitter because he was considered to be a threat. X is new. It's essentially saying that the internet is a libertarian market space where violence and hatred sell, and they are here to monetize it. They are here to make space for the excesses of human expression by hiding behind the mantle of free speech. And I think this is something we need to understand that, you know, Twitter was a microblogging platform that suffered from people abusing free speech and committing acts of hatred and violence. X is a platform that sees the potential of hate speech as a resource that can be capitalized on. Hate speech and these new regulations are not the bug, but the feature when it comes to X. And so if we think of it as nothing more than a violent corporation, which is trying to incentivize abuse, we start talking, we start talking about you know, the harms that it is causing rather than its relevance or its, or its usefulness to the world. Nishan, I, I want to return to your new company versus rebranding point because actually it's not something that I had thought of as well. Um, I, I don't know if this is a fair question to ask, but do you think that rebranding is sort of a sneaky way of introducing a new company in such a way that an existing user base doesn't recognize what is happening and therefore just kind of clings on? Because, um, of course, if you tell me that this is a new company um, or that this is not going to be the thing that you were joining when you initially joined, it gives me a lot more freedom to just go, oh, actually, if it's new, then I don't want to be here. Um, I think the reason why I'm making this provocative proposition is precisely because it has been so sneaky. Right, the entire process through which Elon Musk acquired Twitter uh, was in fact very transparent. He from the very beginning said that he thinks Twitter the way it exists is broken and he wants to build a new company. He never bought Twitter, he only bought its users. Uh, the evaluation of the company was not about its infrastructure or scale because as new platforms like Blue Sky have shown, the infrastructure is really basic. Uh, what was exciting about Twitter was the user base, and he has just bought them. And I think it's upon us to make it transparent, to realize that he has bought us as users, and he's using that devoted fan base in order to instrumentalize and create an entirely new company and a structure, uh, which needs to be evaluated not as uh, a, a continuation of the legacy of Twitter, but actually a disruption of it. 
So at the outset, we saw a lot of people saying that they were going to leave X over the course of the year. This has then resulted in approximately a 11 to 15 percent decline in users. What impact has this had on the company and its relevance? I look at that question and I'm like, I don't care what impact it has on the company. I hope it burns to the ground and dies, right? Um, <laughs> Tell but, us how you but, really feel. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm, I'm not, I, I feel like a reality TV contestant saying I'm not here to make friends with X. Um, okay. But, you know, just uh, my personal vendetta aside, I think we've seen the rise and fall of many platforms, right? Though perhaps not anything so dramatic. I know, for example, that Sharmila and I used to know each other writing on Live Journal. That's right. And nobody knows what it is now. Uh, but, you know, so we move on. Um, and there is, of course, a decrease in the user base. But I would also kind of take that decrease um, with a grain of salt, because let's remember that X is not even able to perform an audit of difference between active users, reliable users, and algorithmic bots. So these numbers are very unreliable. Uh, and even if they were reliable, I don't think the impact is on the company because platforms like X depend on intensity and not only on scale. I mean, yes, they need a lot of people as followers, but largely they need a few nodes which amplify the messages and produce moments of intensity so that the engagement keeps up. And the engagement doesn't necessarily have to be only on Twitter or X. A moment of intensity produced on X will travel across the media ecosystem and will have lots of attention coming from different spaces. So I think the impact is not on the company. I think the impact is going to be on the segregated communities that eventually settle down into using X regularly. And with their new anti-safety policies, we know what are the kind of communities who will use it, right? It will be the ones who thrive on hate and abuse in the name of freedom. And we've seen what happens to other platforms which do not implement safety and oversight regulations. And I think eventually um, X will become the home of the fringe radicals. They will create echo chambers and filter bubbles where they'll keep on shouting, well, first at each other and then at the rest of the world. And because most of the groups, right, of these white supremacists and neo-Nazis and incels and men's rights activists and flat earthers create sensational news, or they will say, what they will say kind of will keep on circulating and amplified by other social media outlets and platforms. So the relevance of X is not about who leaves, but who stays, and whether we have the discipline and the capacity to stop amplifying the voices of the people who stay on it. Because the more we give them attention, even negative attention, the more they are going to thrive. So that's um, something I want to kind of pursue a little bit because um, Twitter, for better or for worse, was relatively mainstream in the past um, or is still mainstream. And when I think about the kinds of spaces um, in which fringe movements now occupy in a big way, they are themselves still fringe platforms. But if we're making the argument that X is going to become the mainstay of, you know, kind of alt-right fringe perspectives. What's happening here? Um, is Twitter becoming a less mainstream platform or are these views becoming more mainstream views? Um, I think that's a fantastic question. And um, Elon Musk has more or less said it in as many ways possible that under the guise of free speech, he wants to normalize hatred and violence. Um, so it's not so much that 
X is going to become more or less mainstream, but X is going to naturalize that these expressions are completely acceptable in the world that we live in. And when it has such an incredible uh, technological and financial infrastructure, it has the capacity to set up new baselines of what is acceptable and what is not when it comes to human and social interaction. Nishant, you've made your feelings about X very clear, but I am curious, are you still on the platform? What's keeping you on it? Have you left? Of course not. I never leave. I have like the biggest <laughs> FOMO in the world. Like I'm still I still have my live journal account. I still have my MySpace page. I still have Friendster. Like I never leave anything. Um but largely I think I I stay there because I do have academic interests. A lot of my work actually deals with online gender and sexual violence. Uh, and sometimes my life is very miserable because I spend hours looking at these people on these platforms seeing the things that they do. Uh, but there is another reason for staying back, right? Which is that the uh, the platform might have changed overnight, but the institutions that rely on it haven't quite moved out. Right. So I was never like a Twitter power user. I I barely stayed there for like occasional live tweeting at conferences and events and sharing work. Um, I can't remember the last time I actually had a conversation on Twitter. It was more or less like a bulletin board, and I still stay there because. Um, um, not because I have an emotional connection to it, because I, I moved to Mastodon when the first big exodus happened. And now I have moved to Blue Sky when the second round of quitting happened. And what I'm realizing is that I actually have no investment in this space. But a lot of the institutions that I work with or work for still haven't found a replacement, right? Because a lot of them have a very committed user base. Uh, there are specific channels. Uh, let's remember that Twitter has been so powerful that there are corporations and institutions which actually hired Twitter managers <laughs> to manage their social media accounts. So I think that transition is going to take a little longer. And so professionally, I might have to stay there uh, for some more time. Uh, but otherwise, uh, Twitter was anyway a very small part of a lot of people who especially do creative uh, and, and critical work. Like I'm trained as an academic, right? So I uh, think in paragraphs and I write in pages, like a microblogging site is just never going to do it. So I, I stay there largely because I think it is a moment of transition that's worth witnessing, but also because we might say we are leaving, but we still haven't figured out what where else we are going to go to. We will continue the conversation after this with Nishant Shah, a Professor of Global Media, as well as Director of the Digital Narrative Studio at the Chinese University of Hong Kong. But we'd like to hear from you. Are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call us, you can send us a voice note, you can WhatsApp us, you can tweet us. We're, of course, talking about this because it's been one year since Elon Musk took over well, X, as it's called now. Send your thoughts through and keep it here, BFM 89.9. Bringing fresh meaning. BFM 89.9. It is 6.37. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about X, formerly known as Twitter, one year after Elon Musk's takeover. We're asking you, are you still on the platform have your feelings about it changed? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. send us a voice note or WhatsApp 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We are continuing our conversation with Nishan Shah from the Chinese University of Hong Kong, where he's a professor of global media, also director of the Digital Narrative Studio. Nishan, just to pick up where we left off, um, 
I think it's fair to say that many users are disillusioned with X and in a larger sense with the internet overall. Do we need to rethink our entire relationship with social media? Um, I think I think one of the reasons why we are being disillusioned is because perhaps we never really got the framing of social media correctly. Right? There was a lot of excitement in the early 2000s when the web 2.0 kind of came in and we were thinking, oh, the internet is the new commons, the internet is the new public space. Uh, we, it's going to be the uh, most egalitarian new space where we are going to reconstruct the world without its inequities. I think um, with X, uh, but also with the ways in which Facebook and TikTok and Instagram and other platforms are taking over, we have realized that we never really had a public space. What we had was a lot of private companies which were facilitating a public discourse uh, and in the process, in fact, shrinking the space for public action, civic action, and for public collectives to be built. So I think the reason why we are being disillusioned is because we realize that we bought into the advertisement of the internet that it was a free space. And we are only now realizing that we have done so much free labor for those private companies in the name of public speech and public discourse. And that they are the ones who are now ruling the roost. They are making the decisions and taking the calls. And we are left figuring out, can I be a friend without a platform? Can I be a collective without a Twitter? Can I actually have real connections and, and societies and social engagements without the intermediaries who are necessarily constructing me only as a user. But you know, the thing is, right, you mentioned earlier never leaving anything. And then for many of us who grew up on the internet, that's a very real issue. So maybe you say you don't have an investment in Twitter, but people do feel um, incredibly attached to what they've produced online, whether it's their images on Instagram or their blogs. Um, how do people contend with having chunks of their lives and personalities living online in spaces that they no longer like or they no longer want to participate in? I agree. Uh, I mean, I'm, my, my joke that I'm just experiencing FOMO and never leaving was only partly a joke. In one of my books called Really Fake, I write about how the promise of the internet was to turn memory into storage, right? We have to recognize that the internet is possibly one of the wealthiest archive, uh, which is both personal and public at the same time. So the reason why we are attached to these spaces is not necessarily because of the platforms, but because of the archives of memories, relationships, and histories uh, that have formed there. Um, one of the ways by which we can start thinking about liberating people from platforms is by finding new regulation and new governance that gives us ownership of our own data back. Right now, almost everything that we produce for the platforms is copyrighted to the platform. They have the capacity to own, to erase, to manipulate, and to sell that data. If only we start thinking about the internet and not the intermediaries of the internet, right? If we think about the digital storage as something that we can retrieve without the dependence on these platforms, we might see a lot of people being able to leave those spaces without experiencing the profound loss that will come from abandoning either the memories or the histories or the relationships that mark them. So here's the thing, right? Um, 
you know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Was it perhaps unreasonable to expect that these platforms could remain free or could remain light on advertising forever? Um, I mean, we've seen some attempts to move towards a subscription model on Twitter. But then again, you know, people don't even really pay for news anymore. So what what are we talking about, actually, when we say we want spaces, um, but perhaps potentially can't figure out yet how to acquire them without paying for them? Perhaps it is time to realize that the subscription model is a legacy model. And the reason why you were paying for subscription to older forms of media and entertainment is because you were an anonymous user who was buying specific information from a particular outlet. The heart of Web 2.0 and digital platforms and social media is that you are not a buyer because you are a commodity. The most successful digital platforms are the ones which are able to commodify our data and use it as a way of making money. So no, I don't think subscription models are going to work because the new digital economies are data economies. And of course, people are not going to pay money because they are already being sold. It would be a very strange world where I'm aware of the fact that I'm paying with my time, my attention, and my data because there is no such thing as an anonymous user left, right? So if I'm going to be a fully identified user and I'm already the commodity, then I'm not going to also buy. So I think it's important to realize that the only subscription models that have worked are actually the same platforms which still allow you to be an anonymous user, right? So Netflix still works because while Netflix, of course, manipulates content and in order to give you suggestions and predictions, uh, it remains one of the few companies that's not allowed to sell the data that it's collecting on us, and hence the subscription works. But for a platform like X, that's just not possible. So I don't want to make us all sound like sheeple or, or drones, but I think um, this attention economy, this premise that we are data points for these companies that then go on to make money off of us as data points, it's something that I think a lot of us know. Um, but at the same time, we continue to pursue lives on social media. We continue to share. We continue to stay on it for hours at a time, doom scrolling. And I guess my question is whether there is, um, well, simply put, any hope. Um, you know, are, are we going to, what's it going to take? Do we have to shift our behaviours or is this whole thing a house of cards that isn't going to be sustainable anyway? I would also not want to be the messiah of doom and gloom and saying that we are all sheeple and we don't know what we are doing. I don't buy into the theory of the naive digital user. I actually think that most people and especially the generation that grew up digital is very acutely aware of the data politics and the ways in which they are being used and manipulated in these spaces. Uh, I think the two interventions. I think the first one is to perhaps start recognizing that if we are in fact going to give out our data, we need to really ask for much better regulation of what happens with data. Right? So the current conversations that are happening in the European uh, Parliament, for example, around the right to be forgotten is one great intervention. Um, we no longer have the freedom of saying we are going to imagine a world whose economy does not run on data sets. But I think we still can imagine a world where what can be done with our data, who gets to remember it for how long, 
and what it can be used, the scope of its usage can still be regulated. And I think there is a lot of hope there. The second hope I really think is about the fact that while the internet does in fact produce a lot of precariousness and a lot of danger for multiple communities and people, the next billion users are still not connected. They are going to come online. And I think if we start figuring out how we shall not bring in the next billion as users, but owners of the internet, so not transform them into becoming the users, but transform the internet to fit the needs of these people, that's going to be a significantly new shift in how we can reposition the internet from this space of weaponization and hatred uh, to becoming a space of collective. And I just do want to point out that platforms like X often get a lot of attention because they are so large, but the internet is not really just one global platform. It is many, many small communities. And in my work, one of the biggest joys I have is to realize small groups of women or queer people or trans people or people who are racially and economically understructured who form safe spaces, who find kinship and solidarity and thrive using these technologies. They're just not, they just don't make for good news. They don't make for good headlines. They don't necessarily use X. Uh, but there is all these different new pockets of the internet which are available. And so if there is a new radical reimagining, we need to stop thinking of the internet as a global platform and start thinking of the internet as a local platform. What does it mean to reappropriate this technological infrastructure to reformulate our relationship with our local and our neighbors is going to be exciting. So I'm glad you brought up community-focused spaces because there have been a lot of think pieces um, and, and even, I think, people talking about how the internet is simply no longer fun, that that's what it used to be. It used to be exciting, it used to be fun, but now there are very few avenues for organic community-led experiences and that a lot of spaces have become uh, too large, they've changed a lot. How would you respond to that? Um, perhaps uh, it's okay that the internet is not fun. Um, because if you look at the most influential and significant technology that is shaping our collective futures and only look at it from the lens of fun, we're doing something wrong. That is the kind of privilege that very few people have had. And I think it's very important to start thinking about where are all the non-power users of the internet and what are they doing? They are living and thriving and surviving and connecting. And if those are the functions that are being met, I'm okay if the internet's not fun. I'm okay if the platform for exchanging pictures of cute cats is dying uh, because it's, it's, it's becoming more insidious, right? So it's also important to perhaps realize that the we often think of the internet only at the level of the interface. But the internet is not just what you see on your screen. The internet is a significant technology which is redefining our position as citizens, as residents, as people. And I think if there is space for everybody to be safe and engaged and have presence, we will find new ways of fun. Because, you know, no matter how difficult situations are, there will always be space even in our lives for exchanging pictures of cute cats. Nishant, um, I, I wanted to preface our last question by saying something like, oh, we're in a, a moment in time where the internet is in great flux. But I think the truth is that that is always the case. Um, you know, things are moving very, very quickly. So with that in mind, um, and with the current state of affairs being what it is, is there a final message you'd like to leave us with? Um, 
Thank you. I I do want to, of course, appreciate that we are talking in the midst of some massive global crisis. Some of them are very immediate. Some of them have been in the making for a long time. Uh, and still, I at the Digital Narrative Studio, we say that we cannot let go of hope. Uh, there is always going to be room for despair, but we cannot let go of hope. And one of the ways in which we can keep on re-engineering hope is to remember that the internet cannot be a measure of the human. It has to measure up to what it means to be human. That if we keep on engaging with non-negotiable human and social values, if we insist that there are certain aspects of us which are not able to, which are not open for compromising, then we can still bring a radical reimagination of what the internet can be and what it can do for people who are still coming online. Nishant, thanks for speaking with us today. Thank you. It was a great pleasure. That was Nishant Shah, Professor of Global Media, as well as Director of the Digital Narrative Studio at the Chinese University of Hong Kong, weighing in and helping us unpack the larger ramifications of all of the changes we've been seeing happening on X. But I think the conversation has actually evolved and really talked about social media as well. We want to hear from you. Are you still on X? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call 77332900, send us a voice note or WhatsApp. 018-789-8899. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Be free-minded. BFM 89.9. It is 7.07. You're listening to Inside Story with Sharmila and Lynn. And uh, we've been talking about uh, Twitter or X one year since Elon Musk's takeover. The different ways in which the platform has evolved. A lot of the, the hate and the criticism that's been leveled its way. And essentially asking what's next for the platform. Uh, particularly in terms of how users are engaging with it. We want to hear from you. Are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred. Send us a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. Lynn, I feel like I know your answer to this, but how have uh, your feelings about Twitter evolved or changed? Okay, so the thing is, I have been not really on Twitter for a very, very, very long time. Um, if not for work and the fact that we sometimes need it. Um, I don't think I would be using it at all. And a big part of that was that I just um, kind of self-motivated myself into feeling sick of putting my own thoughts out into the world. I, I don't know. I just did not necessarily feel the need to weigh in on things. or um, And then I wasn't always interested in the things people were weighing in on. It, Twitter has felt like a microcosm of... You know, Twitter Jaya, right? That That's the joke. So Twitter has felt like a microcosm of a lot of things for a long time. And increasingly, those niches didn't feel like things that I needed to be involved in. So that's one thing. Um, on its own, for me, Twitter ran its course. But then the other thing is, um, as now someone who browses on X, um, I'm startled at how poor the user experience is in many ways. I think that the that there are things every day that make you feel a little bit like you're seeing the woman in the red dress on the Matrix, <laughs> that there are strange glitches. Um, you know, there are just increasing amounts of the kinds of toxicity that our guest Nishant was talking about earlier. And so for me, at least, I don't, I have, I feel like I'm watching a deterioration but I'm also not invested enough, for example, to kind of publicly leave because I feel like I don't matter enough to do that. Yeah, so 
In a way, actually, um, I because I I was never one of those uh, journalists or media people who used Twitter and, and amassed a huge following and used it as an extension of the work I do. There are others who do it very well, um, and I do think they serve an important uh, part of that conversation. But I think that um, I think for me, uh, like you, some of it is that I don't find the experience of Twitter as helpful as it used to be. Um, because before, I used to find it a very helpful space to get uh, the pulse of people, what people are responding to, what they think is important. But now I just find it to be a lot of trash and a lot of alarmist um, incendiary things. Um, but I will return to that thought because we do have a caller on the line. Uh, good evening, Rini. Rini, Hi. what are your thoughts? Uh, I would be having quite similar thing like what she said just now. I feel that it's getting crowded there, wordy, and then someone I think over that, maybe I like looking at pictures rather than words. <laughs> I, I feel that it has changes uh, since maybe last six months. I would enjoy looking at Instagram rather than Twitter. May I ask, Rini, what you used to go to Twitter for? I want to see other people's opinion, but at this time and junction of where what you say, like, don't have to have follower or something. Because people who want to know what famous people say, like what Donald Trump say or what Obama say, once it was like that. But um, maybe I, in my work, I read a lot, so it it's kind of wordy and I think it has metamorphed into something different after X. I think they, they become more liberal or something. So I would say that I come back to Instagram and Facebook. Facebook also. Facebook even more. Yeah. Thank you, Rini. Um I think, I think actually uh, this notion that I'm the thing I used to go there for is no longer there is absolutely what I was trying to get at earlier. Um, that even the I go there for news updates or I go there for um, an informed opinion on something I may not know as much about. I'm finding that um, increasingly, whether it's the algorithm or the quality of people who are amplified the most, um, news updates often come with odd frames and contexts that I'm not interested in. Um, there is sometimes the, the mental load of reading the comment and wading through comments and wading through the responses also gets really tiring. Yeah, um, I'm also interested in tying it to this message from Yap who says, yes, I'm still on X, but I'm wondering what happened to the ultimate rival, Threads, um, and or Thread. And and I think that Threads is interesting um, in relation to what Rini was talking about, because I think it raises the point about what we use social media for. Um, so... Because to be honest, lots of people do very long captions on Instagram and Facebook as well. You just have a choice maybe not to read it because there are other things that are coming along with it, like images, like videos. Um, and I think Threads is interesting because it was supposed to be like a quieter version of Twitter. That's what it promised, um, that it was sort of, I think that's what people found appealing at the beginning, that it was like a throwback in a sense to the, the freedom and freewheeling ways of, of Twitter that have long died off. But then, yep, in answer to your what happened, I think 
growth just didn't happen. Yeah. If there's no so critical nothing mass, happened. <laughs> nothing happened. Because if there's no critical mass, if people aren't updating their, if they're not kind of threading every day, if they're not putting new things up all the time, then what am I going to the site for? We have a voice note that's come in. Uh, this is Roberto. Okay, here's the thing. I'm still on X. However, I don't like the way that it's going or that the way that Elon is handling the thing. Although I'm a supporter of freedom of expression and all the stuff, but I think that there are some limits and platforms just like uh, established media should be kind of the guidelines, you know, the, the ones who have to, the society needs to use as reference. And once that X allow anything to go into the platform back again, it was like, who's moderating them? You know what I mean? It's like excess of freedom, I would say, but for the wrong, from the wrong, for the wrong reasons. I don't know. I'm not using it as, as I used to use it anymore. Roberto, thank you. Thank you for bringing that up. I think it's safe to say that Elon Musk's notion of freedom of expression is a very particular type of thing. Um, it's become clear that he doesn't even mean it the way he he, he, he seems to uh, imply because clearly when people criticize him, there are very few qualms about taking those t- tweets down. So um, I think absolutely it. I think you can be a supporter of freedom exp- of expression. It doesn't necessarily mean that all sorts of things that are harmful and can actually cause uh, harm to people, incite hatred, should be allowed. But you know, Roberto, as you say, you're still on X, even though you don't like it. <laughs> and I think therein lies um, a sort of internet truth. Um, our guest earlier said that he doesn't necessarily want to buy into the the notion of, I can't remember the phrase he used, um, the, the notion that we are all just sort of mindlessly going along, that we don't have any agency or that we don't have any choice in the matter. Um, And I think that's true, that we are informed um, and that we do know. But I also think that there is something to be said about the force of habit. That if you have something on your phone that you're accustomed to checking, um, if you've become used to just kind of firing off a, it's no longer 140 characters, but you're used to firing off a little missive into the internet, then even though things have changed, even as things have started to get or feel a little bit bad, a little bit worse, you stick, you stick there, you stick through. No, I think that's absolutely true. Sometimes um, I, I have like a like a post breakfast ritual, right? And that includes opening each of the social media, even if I know that I potentially don't want necessarily to see what's on X today. Anyway, keep your thoughts coming. Are you still on Twitter? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call double seven double three two nine hundred, send a voice note or WhatsApp zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. Tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be back after this, so keep it here on Inside Story BFM eighty nine point nine. Building fit Malaysians BFM eighty nine point nine. It's seven eighteen. You're listening to Inside Story with with Sharmila and Lynn. And we're talking about Twitter one year after the Elon Musk takeover. We're asking you, are you still on the platform? Have your feelings about it changed? You can call us. You can send us a voice note. You can WhatsApp us. You can tweet us. We have uh, more thoughts coming through. 
Yep. Um, so, well, firstly, Roberto is saying, yep, absolutely, force of habit, which is such a real thing, I think. Um, meanwhile, we also have um, Selva Manikraja, who says, there are so many subscription services where we have privacy. And I think this was a response to what our guest was saying earlier. Um, Only if you use free services are your habits tracked in order to improve your experience as a consumer of the internet. So... Okay, so that's an interesting one. But all right, well, I, I'm just curious about whether there are subscription services where privacy is guaranteed that function like X or Twitter, right? Or like Instagram. And if there are, I am very, I'm fairly certain that they don't operate on this sort of model and that they don't have nearly as many users as any of these other social media platforms. I mean, I think that's actually the irony of it. Oh, actually, I'm very intrigued by the in order to improve your experience as a consumer of the internet, because um, I can see how that's what we are. Um, I can see how that's the premise, right? Um, let me know your preferences. So it's the language of how they frame it, because it's often let me know your preferences so that I can tailor the experience, um, you know, and personalize. There are all these buzzwords around the internet um, and around internet marketing. And I understand why they frame it that way, because of course, who, that's far preferable to tell me everything about yourself so I can relentlessly sell you things. Um, but I think that sometimes, yes, user experience is improved. Other times though, I am thinking about all the, the ways in which people get fed ads on uh, social media that they're not comfortable with. So for example, um, I, I've been reading about people, for example, getting targeted with weight loss ads, for example, uh, for instance, if they follow certain accounts, even though they follow those accounts for body positivity reasons, in other words, to feel better about their body and not necessarily so that companies can know, oh, oh, are you perhaps a, a larger person? Let me start telling you about all these pills that, you know, could help you to lose weight. There are also women who, um, I think, I was reading about this, who for example, are uh, interested in fertility, um, who are looking into that and then get things marketed at them that are very uncomfortable and intrusive. So on the one hand, improve your experience. I think for some instances, that's true. On the other hand, it can also be intrusive. And, and I don't think we get to choose, unfortunately. No, I don't think so. And I also think that there are many subscription services that are still... Um, tracking us, uh, quote unquote, or, or using our data. Um, however, it is um, it is done in a way that often you're unaware or you've opted in because you've paid for that service. And, and there is a distinction to be made there. We have um, Sai saying, I have a Twitter account, but I never use it. It is laying dormant, likely deleted, but I didn't bother to check. The biggest problem with social media is that it always becomes an echo chamber as the users have the choice to follow and block according to their preference. Unfortunately, being voluntarily placed in said echo chamber is the biggest reason social media retains its user base due to the perceived self-validation. Maybe we need a paradigm shift in social media, but to what end? I, I don't know. Um, I, I don't know to what end, actually. Um, it's what we were trying to talk about with our guest earlier as well, right? To try and get at it. And I don't think we have an answer except to say that people should feel more empowered rather than um, that. I, I think uh, Nishant was talking earlier about shifting from users or passive users into owners, um, people who actually have that kind of stake in the internet. Um, 
the echo chamber thing is interesting partly because partly because it has actually shaped the way we consume news, right? Because now we also just don't consume news that we don't want to consume. It's not just social media in which we can live in a bubble. Yes, actually, that's true. Um, and I was actually so that's that's part of that's part of what um, I think that's part of the point that Sai is making, and and I do see what you're saying. But also the biggest. So the thing is, though. The blocking or unfollowing is a conscious act that allows you to um, that allows you to decide when someone is being hateful or difficult because that's been another issue. That's been another issue that uh, Elon Musk has run up against that he wanted to remove the block function, for instance, um, and that's drawn a lot of controversy. So I perhaps would just push back a little bit that blocking perhaps isn't a problem, but where it becomes a problem, uh, like you said, Lynn, is when. The ability to follow or unfollow or to decide to step away from opinions that are against yours or that make you uncomfortable or that are different from you, uh, that does create an echo chamber. And I think that um, is something that we're increasingly seeing the result of. Anyway, um, keep your thoughts coming. Uh, we've been talking about Twitter and uh, the one year anniversary of Elon Musk's takeover. Um, are you still on it? Have your feelings about it changed? You can WhatsApp us. You can send us a voice note 